And so today I want to talk about, this is part five, and it's called Embracing Grief and Loss. It is possible to be a Christian, especially a Pentecostal, charismatic Christian, your entire life and never hear a message about this subject. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time. Others, it'll be um, old news to you, perhaps, but hopefully you'll get something fresh from the Lord today. I want to read a very familiar passage from Isaiah chapter 53. These are Isaiah's words, Who has believed our report? In other words, who, who among us can get this? Who, who believes this? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has seen what God's hand has done? For he, the Messiah, will grow up before him, his father, as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there's nothing about his physique or his handsomeness that makes him stand out in a crowd. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Father, let this word really touch our hearts today as we deal with grief and loss from your perspective. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. In the fall of 1991, Gerald and Linda Sitzer, along with their four children, ranging from ages two to eight, were driving in their minivan on a lonely stretch of highway in rural Idaho. Gerald's mother and his good friend were also with his family in the car. They had been visiting a nearby Indian reservation and a school project for one of their children they needed to make this trip. They seemed, as one of their friends described their family, they seemed like the $2 million family. They felt as though they were living on top of the world. And 10 minutes into their drive home, Gerald noticed a car traveling extremely fast toward them. He slowed down, but the oncoming car at 85 miles per hour crashed headlong into their minivan. The driver was drunk. In one moment, Gerald lost three generations, his mother, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter. And he writes, In one moment, my family as I had known and cherished it was obliterated. Sitzer sat on that lonely highway and watched them die before help could arrive. The driver of the other car was eventually declared not guilty and set free because it could not be proven beyond reasonable doubt whether he or his wife had been driving the car that hit this family. 
And Cicero wrote a book about his descent into the abyss of grief, the incomprehensible pain that changed his life. Under the title, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss, he writes, and I quote, Catastrophic loss, by definition, precludes recovery. It will transform us or destroy us, but it will never leave us the same. There is no going back to the past. It is not therefore true that we become less through loss. Unless we allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down until there's nothing left. Loss can also make us more. He says, I did not get over my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. One learns the pain of others by suffering one's own pain, by turning in inside oneself to find one's own soul. However painful, sorrow is good for the soul. I want you to catch this last line. The soul is elastic like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. Most of us will never suffer grief and loss anywhere close to the magnitude that family did. But to whatever degree we do suffer grief and loss, we must make sure that it grows us instead of destroys us. That our souls have an elasticity, that we are enlarged by our suffering. Our text is taken from the best-known messianic text in all of the Bible. God the Father took initiative to plan the redemption of a fallen race by becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He could have done it any way he wanted to. Messiah could have been raised in a palace away from pain and suffering, having every need met. He could have lived a sheltered life and brought about a more pain-free redemption. But he didn't. Father God already knew pain, didn't he? I mean, read the pages of the Old Testament, beginning with a sorrowful cry in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, Adam, where are you? Here we hear the grieving heart of the Father whose creation had chosen their own way. Hear the Father's heart when His people Israel, whom He considered His bride, went astray. Hear His heart through the prophets as He attempts to woo Israel back from her adulteries, but she insists on having her own way. Hear the cry of Jesus on the Mount of Olives as he wails, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, you are not willing. And hear the plea of Jesus to his sleepy disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's killing me. The sorrow is killing me. 
Stay here and keep watch with me. Moments later, his disciples fall asleep and he walks by himself deeper into the garden, aware of the weight of your sin and mine that's being placed on him. And he cries, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Don't think for one moment that God does not know grief and loss. He is not aloof to your grief. He knows what grief is. And so when he sent his son to redeem us, Isaiah prophesies that he will be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Hebrew word for acquainted is a familiar one to some of you. It is the Hebrew word yada. It's the word that means to know intimately. Adam yada. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. It's the most intimate of words when it comes to knowing something or someone. And here the Bible says, he is acquainted with your grief. He knows your grief intimately. He identifies with your pain and your loss, having felt it to a greater level than any man or woman has ever felt it. You know, we struggle with our personal grief and loss. He carried the grief and the loss of the whole world on his shoulders. Do you think he doesn't relate to your pain? Grief is a reality in our world. And today in our American culture, we want to have everyone as much as possible avoid pain. We have somehow come up with the idea that every American is entitled to a life without grief. And we have produced a culture of victims who instead of growing through their pain, lash out at everyone around them for preventing them from receiving what they feel they are entitled to. You know, when I was a kid, I started playing Little League Baseball, and I got a late start. I, I only played two years. I think it was ages 11 and 12. In my first year, my team was the championship team. Uh, it was an amazing time. We won the pennant that year. We beat all the other teams, and and then in my second year, a number of the players from our championship team moved on to play teen ball. They were too old to play Little League. That left me as one of the older players, one of the stars of the team. I played shortstop and, and pitched, and I, I led the team in batting, but we had a terrible, terrible losing season. After starting out my two-year career on a winning team, <laughs> we couldn't win anything. And even at the end of that miserable season when I was chosen to play on the all-star team, to play shortstop, we lost the all-star games. And it was a big sense of loss for me that I, that I endured as a child. And my parents were wise enough to allow me to feel the pain of that loss. Those memories came back to me this summer as I watched my grandsons lose some ball games that reduced them to tears. And I realized just how important it is for us to suffer loss so that we can mature emotionally. We have to suffer loss. We can't prevent our children from feeling it. 
You know, in some kids' sports programs, they're careful to ensure that no one loses the game. Every kid has to walk away the winner. Every kid gets a trophy so his feelings are hurt. In some leagues, we don't keep score to be sure to protect the kids from feeling any sense of loss. Then, if the kid does get into a competitive league where they actually keep score and you can lose, the parents, you've seen them, turn into animals, cussing out the empire or the referee and getting into brawls with the coaches or with the other parents. It's on the news periodically. You've seen the stories. And then little Ferdinand grows up believing that no one should ever feel pain or loss. And when he fails at his job, when he fails to get the promotion he feels he deserves, he takes an assault rifle into the workplace and kills people. And we say, how does a monster like that get it created? It often begins with a mom and dad who won't let their child feel pain and grief. In many ways, the church has done the same thing theologically. In some camps, in the body of Christ, you are considered weak in your faith if you suffer. If you grieve, you are considered weak. When bad things happen, these believers simply stuff them deep in their soul and convince themselves that they just need to have more faith in God and get over it. After all, if you really have faith, you should walk in the victory. There's a term that gets thrown around, whatever that means. But you should have the victory no matter what happens in life. And so whether it's Little League or some catastrophic loss we experience as Christians, all such avoidances of grief and pain are nothing more than denial. And if you stuff them long enough, you can become susceptible to all kinds of disease and emotional instability. Many people are sick because they stuff. They don't grieve. They don't know how to suffer loss. Bearing grief is part of life, and none of us are exempt. You might say that our text says that Jesus carried our grief, so therefore he'll protect us from experiencing it. Now, Jesus carried our grief not so we could avoid pain and loss, but that so our grief would no longer have the capacity to destroy us. You'll not avoid grief in your life. You'll not avoid loss, but it doesn't have to destroy you. That's the point of the passage. And I would argue today that we must grieve to fully know God. Do you want to be like Jesus? You must learn to embrace grief and loss and to grow from it rather than be destroyed by it. You know, we're told concerning Jesus in Hebrews 5 verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus learned to obey the voice of the Father by going through suffering in his life. It made him sensitive to the voice of God. It made him needing that relationship with his Father. And I speak as one today who has personally done my share of grieving and loss. Early in my ministry, I, I felt the pain of betrayal by my best friend. I was told that I was a gifted 
teacher, but I was not a pastor. I didn't have it in me to lead. That I should be in a college somewhere teaching, that I should leave the church and pursue a higher degree and teach in a college. And it was one of the most painful things that I ever experienced in my life, the betrayal of a dear friend. And I learned way back then, probably 35 years ago, I learned to stuff the grief deep inside. After all, the church needed me to be strong. The church needed me to lead as we tried to recover from this church-shaking event. And as time went on, I was reconciled to my friend, though our relationship was not restored to what it was. But I carried the guilt and the pain of that event for years, and I never fully embraced the grief or loss. I just denied it. It had damaged my reputation in the community as word of the event got out and people were misinformed about what really happened. And I was seen by many as this controlling pastor who lacked compassion. And it hurt me deeply, very deeply. And only as I eventually embraced that grief and pain was I able to grow from it. To have an elasticity to my soul so that I could grow through pain. And after 40 years of ministry, I'm finally getting it. I'm able to get beyond the denial and actually grieve and feel lost when I need to. And I'm able, to, by God's grace, to actually grow from these experiences. My point is, folks, grief is going to come. A sense of loss is going to come at some point. But we have to learn to deal with it so we can move into what God has prepared for our future. You know, I'm going to be very candid with you. Over the past couple of years, I've been grieving over the inevitable transition season in ministry that I'm going through right now. I had planned to pastor this church until I was 75. I'm serious. I started when I was 25, so that was my plan. 50 years, then I would often tell people I'm going to decide what I'm going to be once I grow up. But God began to change my heart and clearly began to call me and Wendy to move into another season of ministry where we'll still be connected with this church, but our focus will be outside more so of this local house. And we saw God raising up pastors Johnny and Rachel, and we knew they were to be our successors. And the prophets spoke to us and confirmed this was all a season for change. But I'm going to tell you something. Even though I know it was God, and God confirmed it in every way, it still hurt. It was still painful. It was a sense of loss. And I had to choose whether to deny the pain or to embrace it and grow from it. And it hasn't been easy, but it's been necessary, and it will be the best thing for all of us. But we don't grieve well in the American church. We're supposed to be so full of joy and life, to be on this big happy journey. There's supposed to be no bumps in the road, much less roadblocks. The truth is that the sooner we learn to embrace grief and loss, the sooner we will experience the new levels that the Father desires to take us to. And one day we're going to reach the ultimate level of heaven, be in the presence of the Father where there will be no more grief. 
and no more loss. But until then, we have to learn to embrace it, be healed, and grow through it. You will not make it through the rest of your life without grief. You will not make it through the rest of your life without somebody that you love deeply dying. You will face it in your life. You will face some insurmountable obstacle on your journey. We need to learn how to properly respond to grief and loss. Now, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has made famous the five stages of response to the death of a loved one. Many of you have heard them. Perhaps you've picked up a little booklet in a funeral home that talked about grief, and they outlined the, the, the stages of grief. You may remember them, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And while this can be helpful, author Peter Scazzaro re recommends that instead we take King David and his response to grief and loss as a model. And Scazzaro divides the process of grief in David's life in three distinct phases. They are, first of all, paying attention. Secondly, living in the confusing in-between. And thirdly, allowing the old to birth the new. And I want to take them one at a time and spend just a few minutes on each of them. Phase one, paying attention as part of the grieving process. You know, David is known in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. He was by no means a perfect man. And he had issues in his life, and a plenty of them, but I want to tell you, denial was not one of them. <laughs> I mean, David had all kinds of stuff going on, but he did not deny. That was a strength that he had. David repeatedly paid attention to the losses in his life, and he had plenty of them. One of the most painful seasons of David's life came after he was chased all over the land by King Saul, a man that he loved and served. And to make matters worse, King Saul's son, Jonathan, was David's best friend. And while David is hiding in the wilderness to stay away from Saul, Saul and Jonathan, his son, David's best friend, were killed in battle. And this was a transition time for David. The end of Saul's reign, David had already been anointed years before. He knew he was going to be the king. He knew the throne was his. It was a transition time. But I want you to notice, David did not move on to the next event immediately. David took the time to grieve properly, and he did it really well. First, being a songwriter, he wrote a song. That's what David did out in the wilderness when he had plenty of time on his hands, the nighttime running from Saul. The song is contained in 2 Samuel 1, verses 17 to 27. I won't read it all, but there David laments his loss. And three times in that song, he cries out these words, How are the mighty fallen? How are the mighty fallen? Three times he says that these are, this is a lament this is grief. He has lost something precious. He loved the king that tried to kill him. And he especially loved his son. He, in that lament, he talks about their greatness. He talks about the greatness of Saul, the man who lived to make his life miserable. 
In other words, he is elevating them because he's trying to show Israel what has truly been lost when these two were killed. He is realizing the magnitude of the loss. That's why at funerals, we look for the strengths of the deceased. We don't talk about their bad points and stuff like that. Even if we have to look hard to find their strengths, we exalt those strengths. Seldom do we talk about their weaknesses because we want to count our losses. It's, it's healthy for us to admit what we're really losing, even though it's hard to find the good things. But David didn't stop there. He ordered the men of Judah, after he wrote the song, he ordered the men of Judah to be taught the lament so that they could sing. Can you imagine a group of soldiers sitting around the campfire, these tough guys that smell like sweat, and, and they've been out in the, the wilderness for how long? And they're sitting around the campfire singing a lament. David ordered that. You will learn this song, guys. And you will sing it around the campfire at camp. <laughs> and then, he didn't stop there. He ordered the men of Judah to be taught, the, the, not the men, but the daughters of Israel. He said it right in the lament. Oh, daughters of Israel, you too get in on the act. You weep for Saul. I mean, he expects other people to join him in pouring out his grief and tears over the enormous loss that they face. He realizes something precious was lost and will never return. Why does David force Israel to stop and pay attention? Why take the time? There was work to do. There was a government to transition. There were people to put in place. There were things to do to get the kingdom established. But he doesn't do any of that. David understood how indispensable grieving is to spiritual growth. He understood it. David knew that we could be deepened by taking time to grieve our losses before moving on. David knew how important it is for people to stay connected to reality and not run from their pain or try to suff it. You know, throughout history, the book of the Psalms has been the most popular book in the Bible. It's the longest book in the Bible. It contains psalms of adoration, of thanksgiving, of wisdom, of repentance, and even psalms of doubt and confusion. The majority of the psalms were written by David, and more than half of the 150 psalms can be classified as laments. Half of the psalms. Laments. Why? Because when we lament, we are paying attention to the reality and the difficulties of life. When we lament as the psalmist lamented, we are wrestling with the questions that plague us in a time of loss. And rather than sweeping things under the rug and having them manifest in physical disease or mental illness, we just get it out in the open. We pour out our complaint to the Lord. And he can handle it. It doesn't knock him off his throne when you complain about how you really feel, as if he doesn't know how you feel. In the Psalms, it seems perfectly normal to question God and to say, where have you been? Why have you forgotten me? Do you even care about me? 
And we read the Psalms, but we wouldn't think of saying things like that to God. Because we stuff it. We're mature believers. Expressing our feelings to the Lord is a way of acknowledging the reality of our pain. If we never acknowledge our pain, we will never heal. That's the way it is. If we never acknowledge our pain, we will never heal. But we are a pain-denying culture, so we ignore our losses. And when we do that, we have to medicate ourselves through addiction. That's why there's so much addiction in this nation. It's self-medication. Pain seeks pleasure. And so we're addicted to TV, to drugs, to alcohol, to shopping, to eating, to sexual escapades. On and on we could go. Even serving others in church, even serving others in church can be a means of covering our pain. Hmm. Let that sink in. Pain seeks pleasure, and that's where our culture is right now. The ancient Hebrews physically expressed their grief by tearing their clothes, by putting on sackcloth and ashes. Jeremiah, one of the heroes of the Israelites, Jeremiah wrote a book called Lamentations. I've been asking the Lord if I could write the second one, Second Lamentations. And Lamentations actually made the the canon of Scripture. Why? Because it's healthy to pay attention to the pain that we feel in the here and now. Pay attention to your pain. That's the first step of David. The second phase of dealing with our grief is living in the confusing in-between. The confusing in-between. You know, as we grow in knowing God as Father, we learn to know His ways. David cried out in the Psalms, teach me your ways. There are a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible, but they don't know God's ways. It's very important that you learn them. One of the ways of God in his dealings with us could be called the in-between time. For example, consider the time between Joseph's dream and Joseph's exaltation to be prime minister in Egypt. There was a long time. And a lot of very terrible things happened to him. How about the time between the covenant that God made with Abraham and the birth of Isaac, the son of promise, the fulfillment? Long time between the promise and the fulfillment. Then there's the time on the cross and on Good Friday, the time between that for the disciples and the day of Pentecost. They were confused, and even after the resurrection, their understanding of God and God's plans were, were undergoing a radical transformation during that time. It was necessary. They were dying to the old to make way for the new. Theology professor Walter Brueggemann had noted that the Psalms can be divided into three types, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Orientation psalms are those where we enjoy God and the creation and the blessings. There we really enjoy God. The second disorientation includes seasons of hurt and suffering 
and dislocation when the bottom falls out and we're wondering what's going on. It's the confusing in-between. And it's there where we feel doubt and resentment and isolation and despair. And the third reorientation is when God breaks in and does something new and our despair after that long in-between season turns into joy. Leighton Ford said the most important time is between dreams, not the dreams themselves. Between dreams. The uncomfortable in-between times. We tend to think that God is not working. That this season is some big parenthesis that we just have to endure. God is at work, but sometimes we have trouble seeing it. It is a period of time when the seed has been planted, but it's under the ground, and we don't know if it's ever going to produce anything. That's exactly where we have been as a church. Seeds have been planted here with great expectation, but we have been in a season of disorientation for several years. We fully expected by now fruit, a huge harvest. Instead, we look at the ground and we wait. And this is the time we must remain faithful. God is at work. Great things are in store for us if we embrace the season. John Milton, in his famous book, Paradise Lost, compares the evil of history to a compost pile. A mixture of decaying substances such as animal excrement, vegetable and fruit peels, potato skins, eggshells, banana leaves, and so on. And if all that rotting, decaying mess, you throw some dirt over it and just leave it alone long enough, after a while, it will smell wonderful. And it will be rich. And a natural fertilizer has tremendous growing capacity to bring fruitfulness, but you have to be willing to wait, in some cases, for years. Milton's point is that the worst events in human history that we cannot understand are only compost in God's amazing eternal plan. (laughs) Out of the greatest evil in history, the death of Jesus, came the greatest good. We would all agree on that. God transforms evil into good. And if you find yourself in an in-between season of grief and loss, here's what I would recommend. Just stop and evaluate your losses, big and small, past and present. Evaluate your losses. There are things that maybe you never grieve. Take some time to ponder those things. Give yourself permission to feel the pain. Your losses are more than something you just have to get over. They are of great value to God and to you in your spiritual walk. Don't leave anything out. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things that you have not properly grieved that are still affecting you today. Some of them might surprise you. Things like a geographical move, an illness, a death, a divorce, a retirement, a miscarriage a job change, on and on we could go. There are things that we, that we suffer loss about that we just stuff them year after year. Read the Psalms until they become part of you. Read the stories of biblical characters 
who thought that the promises of God would never come to pass. Study what they did in the long in-between season. Avoid their mistakes. Replicate their successes. Make the most of this confusing in-between time. Whatever you do, don't forget that God is at work even when you have no evidence that He is. He is at work. Phase three, and I'll close. Allowing the old to birth the new. Allowing the old to birth the new. Some people embrace grieving more readily than others. And it's also important to note among your fellow Christians that we don't all grieve the same way. Some people seem to get over something so quickly and then they want to impose their quick deliverance from grief on somebody else and say, come on, get over it. This is what I did. I just stopped thinking that way and I asked God to help me and he did and I haven't felt any pain since. Well, that's great for you. But everybody grieves differently. Don't impose your grief style on someone else and expect their journey to be the same as yours. We are complex emotional beings and we are all very unique in the way that we process grief and loss. Changes can begin to take place in our hearts as we mourn. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Notice that in these words, there's no rebuke for lack of faith coming from Jesus. No rebuke whatsoever. There's no get over it coming from the mouth of Jesus. He simply says, we are blessed when we mourn. And we are promised comfort. Mourning properly deals with the old so we can give birth to the new. That's what mourning is really all about. And it can give us some surprising results. When we embrace grief and loss, we become more compassionate toward others because we've experienced pain. Some of us aren't compassionate because we've not learned to grieve ourselves. We develop a greater concern for the poor and the needy and we desire to comfort them. When we grieve properly, we become less covetous and idolatrous. We are more apt to rid ourselves of the love of money and possessions. We are freed from the need to impress others. We aren't motivated to please people. We become, when we grieve, more vulnerable and humble. We become more comfortable with the unknown of the future. We experience an enhanced sense of living in the present and not postponing life until retirement. We appreciate now. We appreciate the simpler things of life with a new appreciation. We're at home with ourselves and God. I close with this. In his book, The Princess and the Goblin, George MacDonald tells the story of a little eight-year-old princess living alone in a little palace on a large mountain. And inside the mountain, there are a race of goblins who, who hate her father, the king, and his daughter, her, the princess. And they plot to kidnap her and destroy her. Her very old grandmother, however, knows that she's in grave danger, and so she gives her a ring with a thread attached to it. And the strange thing about this thread that's attached to the ring is she can't see the thread, but she can feel it. And her grandmother says, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, but you must not doubt the thread. Go where the thread leads you. 
The thread consistently leads the opposite of what's the, what the princess expects. And it begins by directing her up a mountain into a hole, into a place of total darkness. And she crawls along further and further into the darkness. And she wonders, will I ever get out of here? And finally, she's led to a huge heap of stones. And she cries and she wails. And the thread goes into the stones. So finally, she begins to remove the stones one by one. And there she finds her good friend trapped behind them. And as they try to find their way out of the maze inside the mountain, her friend argues that she's leading them in directions by which they'll never escape the darkness. But she says this, I know that, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. Even though it goes against her natural instincts, she obeys and follows the thread. She fears no danger. She lives in calm. Why? Because she knows that her all-knowing grandmother is guiding her with a thread. And eventually in the story, the goblins' plans are exposed and defeated, uh, good wins over evil and so on. As we noted earlier, grieving is counter to the culture in which we live. But what we need to do is follow the thread that's outlined by God to us in Scripture. It's very, very different from our culture. And frankly, it's different from the way that many of us have lived our Christian lives. We've lived them in denial because we've been taught denial by the church. But if we follow the thread, we will learn to grow through pain and the fruit will be the compassion of Jesus in us toward other people. The ability to embrace our losses and our grief will equip us to love others the way Jesus did. How could Jesus love so much? Because he lost so much. He grieved so much. I encourage you to embrace your grief and let Jesus heal it. Let him heal it. Your soul is elastic. Let the grief and the losses you have experienced allow your soul to grow larger and to make you more effective for God's glory. God is a redeemer. He doesn't waste anything, not even your grief. He wants to use it. He wants to heal you and enlarge you to be a person of compassion and mercy. Embrace your grief. Embrace your loss. And let it be turned into something beautiful. Amen. Let's pray.